The data we've got in healthcare is not all digital, but it's increasingly becoming digitised faster than we can use it. So we need to get better at using the digital data that's within our organisational boundaries. Welcome to Series 2 of the Future Health Podcast, a podcast on the way we work, the work we do, and how technology will influence the future work in New South Wales Health and the healthcare industry. We have an incredible lineup of guests this series, and we're looking forward to sharing it with you soon. Feel free to like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Our guest today is Dr. Simon Kors, who has previously been the Chief Medical Officer at Microsoft Health and is an expert at digital health technologies and digitization of healthcare. I'm looking forward to discussing with him on how we can harness the power of digital health into the future. Hello, everyone. Uh, my next guest is Simon Kors, a healthcare executive for Microsoft. Uh, thanks for coming along today, Simon. My pleasure. And it's great to see you in person after all these years and two years of being away and, and pretty much meeting virtually. Um, as I highlighted, Simon is a healthcare executive with Microsoft, and we're here today to talk about what the future of work worker and workplace in healthcare looks like. And I know as a doctor and a healthcare executive with uh, Microsoft, you clearly have been working in this space for a long time now. So please feel free to give us your introduction, where you are at at this moment, and how do you see this future playing out? Thank you, sure. And you're right, I, currently I do work at Microsoft, that's my day job, but I've spent the last 20 years in digital health. Um, I started as a clinician, I was working in the critical care areas, emergency anaesthetics, ICU, and I was really frustrated by the technology that I was using at the time. And I saw near misses happen around me the people not having the right information at hand to make care decisions. And that insight led to a hobby, led to a career, and um, 20 years later, here I am. So uh, it's been an interesting ride. And in that time, I started with a fervent belief that if we just put in electronic medical record systems, we'd be able to stop patient, avoidable patient errors, especially medication errors. So that's where I, I spent the early stage of my career, um, eight years at electronic medical record companies, InterSystems and Cerner. And I did exactly that. We put in those systems of record and I realized to my horror that digitization does not equal digital transformation. And to put in an electronic medical record actually needs a raft of technologies around it to bring it to life. Um, if you put in an electronic medical record and there is no communication and collaboration, then you can increase the potential for errors. If you're not using the data that you capture, if there is no measurement, then you're asking doctors to alter their workflow and increase their administrative workload without the value being put back into their workflow. If there isn't mobility um, and workflow, you're not taking that capability to the point of care. Uh, if you don't support it properly with security, it goes on and on. So I've moved to Microsoft 10 years ago, and I was lucky enough to run the health business um, in Australia for six years, 
go to the US and be the global chief medical officer based in Seattle. Um, and that was extraordinary to experience models of care all around the world, large organizations, small organizations, innovative software companies. And uh, for the last 18 months or so, I'd been working in primary care here in Australia, uh, running a startup that opened GP clinics. So where have I come to? Yeah, I've come full circle. I'm really passionate about where we are today. I think um, because of the COVID period that we've been under recently, our system has been forced to adapt and change and we've embraced digital models of care and new workflows. It's actually a really exciting time to think about what does our future look like and what is the future role of digital in health? Yeah, no, you, you almost summarise everything in that two-minute snippet, but I'd like to pick up on a few of those themes you highlighted there, and one of them being the challenges. And and this is not just around the EHR or EMR, but also around technology and life in itself and how they are implemented. And if they are implemented to meet a certain need without collaborating or including the needs of the other stakeholders where it ends up as you can as you would know that um, at least not in Australia as much but internationally the contribution EHRs are making to clinician burnout and the workflow impacts they have are a significant problem to overcome and as we in Australia move from that initial digitization phase to a, to a true digital transformation how do you see this playing out into the future and what are those principal items which we know now, which we didn't know 20 years ago? I know we both were in similar kind of journeys in the past. And you look at it and you go, oh, I wish I knew then what I know now around the systems and their designs itself. Would you like to highlight a bit more on that? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think um, as doctors, we are natural innovators. We're always on the lookout for things that might improve the way we do things, but we don't necessarily architect it at an organisational wide or a system level. So we saw digital creep into clinical probably 40 years ago, and these were introduced as point little solutions or reporting solutions or departmental solutions. And by the time we stepped back and asked ourselves, should this be an enterprise-wide approach, we had a high degree of fragmentation, lots of little data silos, and we weren't really stitching things up. At that stage, I think health started to diverge from other industries that are, were also going along their paths of digital transformation. Health is different. We've got highly specific workflows. The information that we deal with is ultra sensitive, that's patient information, and it's a 24 seven job. So health has cultivated a bit of a cottage industry around us. We've said, you need to understand healthcare, you need to be designing health systems first, and what that's resulted in is an industry that has moved at a different pace from our digital society. And now we actually see that gap broadening. Um, the paradigm that clinical systems were inculcated in probably 30 years ago was a very prescriptive standardization approach. And that has resulted in some um, benefits. It's great to have digital information because it's legible, it's, it's accessible, um, you can audit it. That's, that does have benefits. But 
at the same time, as our models of care change and we start to pivot to newer ways of working, virtual health in recent times has been a good example. The future shift to how do we take care out of the hospital into the community and provide integrative care, the next horizon of precision medicine and genomics, all of those are going to require quite adaptive systems and we don't know what that looks like. So I think the challenge we've got now is we have quite inflexible systems of record in place and they dictate the end user experience. I think what we need to move to is an, as an acknowledgement that systems of record aren't necessarily the best systems of engagement. Um, but if you break it down into, I think about it in three layers, systems of record, that's where the data sits. Um, that is the longitudinal record. That is a source of truth. That can be different from the systems of insight. How do you actually get that data out? How do you use it for retrospective reporting, real-time analytics and dashboarding, prospective artificial intelligence and decision support? And then the systems of engagement. What are those systems that providers use to learn, team, communicate, collaborate? And how can those workflows be adapted so that they can start to introduce new players, including the patient, into um, emerging models of care? So I think if we recognise that the systems of record, which we've classically called electronic medical record systems or RISPAC systems or laboratory information systems, they are where the um, data needs to sit and be preserved. That can be different from how we actually consume it or how it is presented to us as, as end users. Then we can start to innovate at different rates. A system of record can sit there and preserve that information over a longer period, but then we might innovate how we deliver that to the end user. Mobility is the latest wave that has been um, really important. How does that scale to future devices, including wearable devices and so forth? That needs to move at the pace of our digital society if we're to deliver on the expectations of our clinicians and also patients too. Yeah, no, it, it's interesting that you say that because um, I've always uh, harped on about splitting the transactional layer from the storage layer. I've used three terms for this, the the EMR being the storage layer, the transactional la layer being the engagement layer, and the intelligence layer being where the analytics flows. And it's the flow of data between these three systems rather than the true definition of interoperability. And it'll be interesting to just get to know what your understanding of interoperability was 20 years ago mm. and what your understanding and a view on interoperability versus a single system. Because I believe interoperability was a theme used by industry to try and increase their market share when it comes to an electronic medical record. Because the true interoperability around data sharing is where we really need to move into. So we are able to have these three layers work independently, but also well enough to be able to work and do the functions that they need to. From a commercial market share perspective, if you provide systems, you ideally want as many people to be using as much of your systems as possible. And when you get your arms around that, then you control the organisation, the sector, uh, and that's good for business. Um, but it's very hard as the, the needs explode and innovation occurs to be all things to all people. So the requirement is, and the reality is, that 
there are going to be multiple different systems and we need to move from a paradigm of closed systems providing everything with the benefits of standardization to open systems allowing data to flow so that we're able to get the best of capabilities out there from the entire ecosystem the entire marketplace um, Historically, some of the standards that have supported interoperability under that closed model are back and forwards messaging like HL7 and so forth. It's nice to see emerging standards come in like, like HL7 Fire that actually support more complex data structures and are more standardized in their approach that do allow different systems to semantically interchange information with their contextual basis intact. I think that's pretty exciting. Um, there are a few different ways of thinking about fire. Yeah. The closed way of thinking about fire is radio. Mapping. We control the system. <laughs> yeah. um, we will then create a marketplace. And if you are fire compatible, you can surface within our marketplace. That's one way. Um, if you talk to Graham Greve and Josh Mandel, the authors of the FIRE standard, they conceived as different systems passing information backwards and forwards, and even a presentation layer being agnostic of all the systems underneath that would provide a truly aggregated, comprehensive user view that gives you that full system of information on a page. And that layer is going to be the layer where the power lies and about where who in the system owns it is going to be the key. And I think that, I didn't, I didn't think I was talking about those things 20 years ago and it seems to be evolving and slowly becoming commonplace in, this, in the system now. Do you see systems adopting that approach? So certainly within the um, digital health community, community, everyone is anchoring on the concept of fire, and that's really important to see. But at the same time, it's important to understand that we have a very long tail within health systems. We've put these systems in, and typically they're going to be in there for 15 or 20 years, or some outliers are approaching 40 years. Um, when that is the case, you need to ask yourself, okay, if these systems are not going to embrace and adopt these new standards, how do we make use of that information that resides there? And maybe they, they be continued to used in a legacy fashion by the people who need to use them, but then liberate that data store. And there are actually ways of creating interoperability with those older systems that don't speak those newer formats to be able to translate it and bring that data, um, liberate it so that it's liquid and available and useful by the rest of the organization. Yeah. Since we're talking about the future of work and uh, the workplace and the worker, and also obviously how it then impacts our patient care. You talked about models of care. If we were to achieve a true three-layer digital system for our healthcare, how do you see it impacting how the uh, clinician works? I know we've seen a lot of videos of what the future clinician would look like, but it'd be great for our listeners to know how what it means to have those three layers yeah so rather than to, what we do now where we type on the screen wait for an alert to pop up to tell us that this patient might have sepsis or this patient might be at risk of falls after we filled out a form which we could have by the time we've done the form we already know what is the outcome of that 
Yeah, so um, it's worth unpacking those different systems. When I think about systems of engagement, I think about how people get information into digital systems and how they get information out of those systems. From an input perspective, we've been conditioned in digital that it's mouse and keyboard to get the data in. And that limits us. There are so many other ways that we can get information in. It's nice to see the rise of the internet of medical things and the connected medical devices because now we're getting signal data in and that comes at minimal overhead. No one needs to do anything to have access to that data coming into the system. And when you've got data, you can do great things. That's system of insight. So that's internet of medical things. I think there are other more natural user interfaces. So rather than mouse and keyboard, how do we optimize systems for use by touch? So um, I have seen some of the early mobility examples where we're using systems of record that are optimized for mouse and keyboard um, input on 17 inch desktop displays being used on mobile devices. That's hard because without a precision pointing device like a stylus, it doesn't respond well to, to fat fingers. So how do we optimize things for a fluid, natural touch experience? What's the role of voice? How might we be able to move from simple digital dictation and transcription into voice recognition? And then how can we take voice recognition to the next level? So I've had some exposure to some um, research stuff that we've been doing, um, ourselves first party and in partnership with Nuance, that will transcribe the doctor-patient consultation, mark it up into a pre-formatted medical note, and then learn as clinicians modify by exception so that that documentation is automated out of the box. That's exciting. What is the role of mixed reality? Um, we're seeing headsets like the HoloLens be used increasingly for medical education, taken into the operating theater, not just augmenting what's being seen, but recording and storing that experience so that it can be replayed back to student for, for teaching purposes. Um, these are the, the new user interface type of, type of scenarios. Um, even as we talk about the advent of telemedicine, we've got the system of record and we've got this clunky side-by-side -side video application. How might we be able to make that more seamless? So the video experience is presented in context with the electronic medical record. And then we complete the loop so that from a patient's perspective, we're allowing them to seamlessly self-select their own appointments, check themselves in when they're available with the appropriate re reminders that tell them, hey, your appointment's coming up. Um, modify it for the health context so that um, there's actually a waiting room rather than patients coming into the same call as doctor creating that awkward situation. Obfuscating the provider name so the patients don't have access to their information to call them back. Um, and then having that telehealth experience be a far better one than we've experienced um, in the urgency of responding to the COVID crisis. So system of engagement, those are the things I mean when I talk about systems of engagement. Um, and systems of insight, by contrast, um, is moving beyond just those yeah. retrospective <laughs> reports, which yeah. is good. It's important to know not what um, what best practice is, but what your practice is compared to best practice. Benchmark, like for like, see who's doing better, understand that, know when 
when your performance changes in response to change initiatives or external events, but to move it to a more real-time view. How do we actually manage a busy emergency department, make sure that there are no missed results, that the patient over in the corner hasn't been waiting um, an obscene amount of time for their consult to turn around, people that haven't been discharge, discharged or decisions made within the four-hour rule, that sort of stuff to get um, a real-time view of bottlenecks. And then the exciting idea of how do we layer in decision support and artificial intelligence? And how might artificial intelligence start to disrupt some of the traditional medical practices? I see that starting in the diagnostics first, radiology, pathology, dermatology, uh, microbiology. But rapidly, the idea that we've got um, a computing power that's over our shoulder to help us like a spell checker does when we author a document, that's actually really exciting. Means that we as doctors um, and clinicians can use our higher order sensors, but have the more routine stuff scanned by um, a brain that's better suited for that lower order, repetitive routine stuff. Yeah. Oh, look, I mean, I'm just gonna pick on a couple of things there and um, probably challenge you and also think around the way just digitization or digital systems evolve. Uh, when I see my son uh, now, the written word by the pen is already disappearing. Do you see that the reason why we went towards a text-based model was because we digitized what we did with the print? And also, it was harder to store video files than they used to stack up a lot of memory on a, on a floppy disk as compared to a text file. Is there a future where you see that people will stop typing as well? Not Maybe not in our lifetimes, but maybe the typed word will disappear, just like the written word will might do so in the next 10 to 20 years. And then you're truly talking about conversations just being recorded and transcribed or do whatever you have to or store it in a file storing and using that data in a way that it makes sense for. What an exciting idea. Um, I can't practically conceive of how that would happen today, but I do think we need to move beyond the reliance on typing. Look, I think what we did when we had the advent of um, systems of record is we looked for commonality and across the, the um, at least the acute care sector, there was commonality in certain things. Patients needed to be get brought in, admissions, discharge, transfers recorded, presented into patient lists. The order communication and results receiving process was relatively common. Authoring discharge summaries, scheduling, those are the sorts of things that you can lift up and say, right, yeah, these are the standard backbone of a healthcare system. Um, but then some of those other elements that you mentioned were typical departmental systems. The, um, the laboratory information system had those detailed anatomical pathology specimens and the microbiology and the slides. Radiology department and medical imaging had all of those medical images. Increasingly, those distinctions can start to go away. Now that we've got the advent of cloud computing, it means that our storage and our compute aren't limited by the size of our servers on premise or the data centers that we've got locally. We can tap into world scale power, which is increasingly coming down in unit cost. So that becomes incredibly exciting. The other thing that we're doing more commonly is we're taking that information out of the acute sector of care and we're required to share it with community for integrated care 
there with other health organisations around uh, clinical collaboration and patient care. So I think it is appropriate to start to have a more multimedia rich um, record keeping system. And I do think this whole concept of being able to empower the patient with elements of their own record that then they can see, they can increase their health literacy, and then they can start to own aspects of their self-care is really important. Um, if you look at some of the analogs that we've got in retail, in banking, and in the travel industry, that's been the power shift. It's when the information gets out to the consumer who can then start to self-manage. All of a sudden you give them a voice, you empower them, and it changes the service delivery. I can see the same start to happen in healthcare too. Yeah, it's, a, it's going to be an interesting and challenging time for a lot of um, older clinicians, or not just older, the people who are resisting change at the moment. Um, how do you see the role of doctors and the team around them change into this future. You know, we're already seeing that we're starting to talk about scribes and that was 20 years ago. We never got scribes in Australia, but it's almost time to put them aside now. Um, and do we just wait for another 20 years and then just say, oh, well, that will we'll just take on the future in 40 years time? Or do you see that disruption in Australia is ready and it's at that corner, um, especially with COVID and these models of care thing you highlighted? Are you seeing pockets where we're already challenging this and getting to it? Look, even when I graduated, and I won't tell you when that was, I was a digital native and I was walking into the healthcare organisation and I felt like I was checking my brain at the door and walking back decades in time. Increasingly, we're having digital natives as the next generation and future of our workforce and they're coming with expectations and the patients are coming with the same expectations. So yes, we need to uh, pick up our pace in that regard. Um, but if I tackle your general question in a specific way, one of the elephants that's been in the room ever since um, Gary Kasparov lost to DeepMind in the, or Deep Blue in the, in the chess game is, what's the role of artificial intelligence and how will that change our role as clinicians? Um, it's interesting to see now that after the initial furor died down, that a computer can beat a chess master, when we actually see the, the modern chess champions, their teams of computers and chess champions working in concert, that kind of cockpit model where the human's driving the machine, but um, the machine allows them to do more than they ever would be able to do before. I see the same sort of thing happen in medicine, and now the discussion has been, will I be replaced by a robot, is moving on to a more mature perspective of, is my job being threatened by clinicians who are using artificial intelligence more effectively? Um, one example I'm pretty familiar with, I did some work in the NHS um, several years back where we looked at the radiation oncology workflow and treatment planning. And I was stunned to realise that even in this modern age, the way that typical radiation oncology planning gets done is slice by slice, by hand, a radiation oncologist is outlining the tumour margin um, and then using that to feed it into a computer um, so that they can then go do the radiation therapy. That laboriously manual process, firstly, it's a poor use of a radiation oncologist's time. Secondly, it takes about 40 minutes to do per patient. That's something that a computer can do really fast, really cheaply, and actually more accurately. So 
which radiation oncologist is going to be more effective? The one who uses some computational power to assist in that relatively repetitive, low-value task, or the one still doing it by hand? Um, and so I think we need to think about what tasks are humans best suited for and what is the role of um, machines? And if I were to split it just broadly and crudely, I'd say there's the art of medicine and the science of medicine. And the art of medicine is something that's very hard to define into a mathematical model. If the computers are really good at high volume routine repetitive tasks, set that to screen for abnormalities and have clinicians deal with those outliers and the exceptions. If the computers are good at flagging where a problem might be, a human needs to take accountability for that decision making and actually say what needs to happen. If the computer says, I've, I've identified an issue that needs explaining and explainability and that rapport with the patient and the doctor-patient relationship, that's not something that a machine can do. So I think this chestnut of um, are we going to be replaced by the doctor on the bridge of the Star Trek Voyager, yeah. <laughs> I think we're a long way away from artificial Even there, you had Spock doing the scanning. Not doc uh, was it doctor? What was doctor's name? So I there were multiple generations, generations weren't yeah. there? And there was someone scanning. Yep. The information was coming Dr. through. Dr. McCoy, wasn't it, in yeah. the original one? The intelligence, yeah. The intelligence was coming through, but it, there was still the person delivering the results and working with the options. And I think, um, and I've written in this piece around augmentation rather than automation, because I think I totally agree. I, I would, would you rather go as a patient to doctor who uses all the tools that Label to him and gives you the option of choosing what suits best to your needs or do you go to one who just has a very depends on the situation too I guess but most of the time I would probably potentially shift towards the next and maybe as the more digitally enabled society comes in they'll probably start pushing for those options as well. Um, on that point, though, yeah. um, that's really interesting. You say it depends on the scenario. And I think there has been an epidemiological shift in the burden of disease that we're dealing with. We've got a health system that was inculcated centuries ago um, that's really good for trauma or for infectious disease that actually should be managed with low levels of patient engagement in the acute setting. But now with the aging population and the burden of chronic disease, those are lifestyle induced illnesses better managed proactively in the community. So depending on the condition, yeah. I think there's more or less of a case for patient empowerment, self-selection and involvement in their care. Yeah, and what does the system do and what the healthcare provider provide is going to change over the future. Uh, Simon, you highlighted something very interesting around those three layers. And one of those things as doctors and researchers we have always noticed is that uh, the traditional way how we looked at outcomes and interventions was we look, took, looked at a bunch of data markers and said, oh, well, here's a logistic regression model which tells us uh, smoking causes cancer um, or uh, you do this and this outcome is likely to occur. But more and more we're seeing that outcomes as in, especially when you talked about the proactive care and chronic disease modeling, is that a lot of factors that have impacts on our patient outcomes are way beyond the systems we're already collecting in. And that boundaries around healthcare data is, and what is health and what is healthcare data is disappearing. 
around the same concept of IoT and IoMT, which you raised. Uh, a lot of the data they're bringing in, we've always had this secular point of saying, oh, healthcare level data, health level data versus data just which sits out there. But we know time and again that a lot of this around mobility at home, mobility, uh, what they do at the gym, what do they buy at the shops, have such significant impact on chronic disease outcomes and even lifestyle outcomes. So how do you see this playing out into the future? And what do you see are the key challenges around these? And how do we inculcate this into our practice and drive it towards a better future? Yeah, there's so, many, so much in that to unpack. <laughs> yes. So if we start, um, yeah. the data we've got in healthcare is not all digital, but it's increasingly becoming digitized faster than we can use it. So we need to get better at using the digital data that's within our organizational boundaries. That's, that's point one. Um, point two, to your point is um, more data is always better, develops the potential for deeper insights. Being able to mash up hospital level data with other relevant sources of data can actually lead to some really interesting insights. And there, you talked about the bridge between what happens when we get sick within the walls of the hospital or even when we visit primary care versus what's actually happening out there in community where you have those moments of truth. Because if you think about sickness, it's all predicated on the social determinants of health. What's your housing? What's your support structure like? Um, what's your mental health like? All of those are increasingly relevant. Um, when I think about the boundaries of healthcare, I think those boundaries are starting to blur and that creates for some exciting unknowns. Um, so when I think about the health system and I think about the government system, if we were to bring those two data sets together, like they do in Finland, you'd be able to see, track someone from health, but with indicators that would suggest that they were at risk of disease all the way through to the health system and be able to track that, that journey. Those two adjacencies have complementary data sets. Um, when I think about research, um, one, of the, one of the hot topics at the moment for life sciences and pharmaceutical organisations is real world evidence. So how do we take research out of the lab and actually bring it into the real world and use that to potentiate the kind of research we're doing? Um, I think retail health is really interesting. We don't see this so much in Australia. It's taking off in the US and also to the UK. The acknowledgement that in some of the places with weaker primary healthcare systems than Australia um, and, and um, populations who are more attuned to convenience and empowerment, um, they actually go to the retail outlets more than they go to primary care. If you can conveniently co-locate primary care services there, then it's a win for the consumer who has easy parking and convenience. Uh, it's also a win for the retailer because now you've actually got a new way of getting the customer into your store and doing upselling as well. I think there's an interesting crossover between finance and healthcare when you talk about insurance and how do you move from general insurance into health insurance and um, what, is the, what is the incentive to try and keep people healthy over the long term. I think there's a fascinating adjacency with digital and health. You're seeing some digital companies actually take a first party initiative into the healthcare domain with the first party provision of health services. So we're watching that closely as well. Um, all of this creates 
a potentially enormous pool to look across and mine for insights that give us a deeper level of insight than we've ever had before. Um, but to your point around the cyber, there's also a, a surface area of cyber threat that each time you cross an organizational boundary or get a larger data set, the information becomes more valuable, order of magnitudes more valuable, and then um, protecting that data asset becomes more important as well. Um, when I think about the digitally progressive industries, we traditionally cite retail, banking, manufacturing as some of the most progressive. We talk about government, healthcare and legal as some of the least progressive, and there are reasons behind that. Um, but on the black market at the moment, healthcare information is at least 27 times more valuable because you can't just drain someone's bank account with that information, you can actually go the next step to identity theft. So we need to be really careful with our sensitive health data, ensure that as it moves from the domain of our control up to cloud type environments, we're protecting it properly. And that needs a higher level of security than we've traditionally thought about in healthcare. Um, and we've seen some implications about ransomware, even here in this country, as organisations who are not digitally ready are now exposed to the internet and the most sophisticated industry of all, which is cybercrime. Yeah, uh, uh, that's some useful insights there, um, Simon. And it highlights that whilst we want to do a lot of these things at pace and keeping up with pace, there's a lot of checkpoints and check boxes we have to tick as well along the way to get there. Um, in regards to how the patient experience would be um, and how you see that being impacted through, like you said, the first party movers from digital space rather than the healthcare space. Because you've seen this explosion of apps around how, uh, especially around mental health and how to look after them. Um, whilst it's not the true evidence-based medicine that we used to, um, it's almost like a lot of other healthcare initiatives which happened years ago, which now suddenly have become mainstream medicine. How do you see that playing out? And do you see that as, as a threat to what we're doing? Because you can see that happening in the dental space uh, with dentures and uh, online activity with Tuvo Slot, because uh, we had the pleasure of interviewing one of the front runner dentists a few months ago. Um, do you see that as a threat to the healthcare industry as such? Or do you see that working at in a complementary space in the future? So I think it's really simple to be a futurist in healthcare because all you have to do is look at the more digitally progressive companies, countries, maybe the US, um, the Nordics are doing some really interesting things. Um, and then you need to look at other industries and you can see the trends that are relevant to society that will ultimately impact healthcare. I think um, consumer empowerment through mobile apps has absolutely been a phenomenon across society and we're only scratching the surface of that in healthcare. Um, although the evidence is different, um, it's actually undeniable that the results that you're getting from digital engagement and behaviour change um, can augment, if not be superior to medication alone for certain areas, especially around around mental health and mental and behavioural health. Um, so I, th I think we'll we'll definitely see this 
continue. But I think the last thing that we need is to be randomized to death by thousands of applications. And then it introduces the newer um, concept of who is the arbiter of quality, which are the whitelisted applications that are appropriate for use, and which are the ones that um, don't have real clinical value. And it's interesting when I look at two similar industries that are actually quite different. One is the healthcare or sickness industry, and the other is the emerging wellness industry. Um, and the healthcare industry is mature and highly regulated and has a solid evidence base behind it. This wellness industry has massive consumer traction and adoption, but is the unregulated wild west. Um, for all of the subjective value that patients and consumers derive from that, there's a lack of credibility in it. Um, and so it, it deserves a degree of judiciousness. I actually see um, people from both of those industries being able to work in concert to be able to harness the best of the wellness industry, apply it to our sickness industry and start to shift this reactive model of sick care into more proactive management of wellness. And I think the digital engagement side has a, has a huge role to play in that regard. Yeah, and of how, how do we validate, validate and create that whitelist and actually create a data enriched way of engaging with these whitelist apps to then give people almost like an incentive of why they would use something on the whitelist versus not the whitelist because they know that that would have an impact on their illness cycle and not just their health cycle. So that's a great space to be working in in the future. Thanks so much for coming across today, Simon. And honestly, um, Whilst we don't know what the future looks like, we definitely do know what we want it to look like. And hopefully what we end up with is going to be very close to what we talked about today. Thank it's, you so much again. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So that's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for joining me on the show. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to like, share and subscribe on whatever platform you are on right now. 